Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHESS, I would like to welcome you to this CHESS Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I'm your CHESS podcast moderator. So thank you all for joining us today for what will be an interesting discussion on COVID-19 sub-phenotypes. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Charles Vasquez and Dr. Nicola DeProst as our guests. Dr. Vasquez and his colleagues wrote an article soon to be published in the CHESS Journal, Identification of Distinct Clinical Subphenotypes in Critically Ill Patients with COVID-19. Dr. Vasquez is a Chief General Surgery Resident at the University of Pennsylvania, who has also completed a fellowship in surgical critical care and a master's in clinical epidemiology. Dr. DeProst and his colleagues wrote the accompanying editorial, Clinical Subphenotypes in Critically Ill Patients with COVID-19, now looking for different treatment responses. Dr. DeProst is a professor of critical care medicine at Henri Mondor Hospital in Créteil, France. His research is focused on clinical and translational acute lung injury and pulmonary infections. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having me for this very exciting discussion. Thank you both for joining us. So I'd like to start, Dr. Vasquez, with asking you, why did you ask this question? What led you to do this study? Sure. So um, our group was interested in this question for a couple different reasons. Uh, We know from clinical experience that diseases like sepsis and acute respiratory distress syndrome can manifest in a highly variable manner. And over the past five to seven years, there's been substantial progress uh, that has been done to characterize subphenotypes within these heterogeneous diseases um, that cause critical illness like ARDS, acute kidney injury, and sepsis. And this work has also um, demonstrated differential responses to treatment and retrospective analyses of clinical trial data, and uh, such as the use of statins in patients with ARDS. So with this uh, insights as background, um, very early on in the uh, COVID-19 pandemic experience, clinicians across the world describe many unique and varied presentations uh, and disease trajectories in patients with COVID-19. Um, however, uh, when we started off with this project, there had been uh, little empirical description to confirm the um, existence of these different disease subphenotypes in a rig- really rigorous manner. So we um, tried to set out to do that. So what do we know about COVID-19 subphenotypes from previously published literature? Sure. So um, when we undertook this project, uh, which was around uh, April of 2020, Uh, there was very little that was known about COVID-19 subphenotypes. Probably the most prominent contribution uh, to this area at the time was uh, the proposal of uh, what are called the LNH uh, phenotypes by Gettinoni, uh, which was published uh, as an editorial. But um, uh, excitingly, over the past uh, six to nine months, um, other groups that have uh, been interested in this same topic, and there's been a number of different publications that have used a variety of different techniques to identify uh, COVID-19 subphenotypes using clinical data, using 
respiratory physiologic data as well as immune response profiles uh, that have really um, added to this um, area of research quite significantly. So you use data from a multi-center cohort study with critically ill patients with COVID-19 from 67 hospitals across the U.S. Can you please explain for our listeners how you analyze that data? Of course. So uh, we utilize uh, data from an observational study cohort called STOP COVID, which stands for the study of treatment and outcomes in critically ill patients with COVID-19. We analyze data from 3,300 patients across uh, 67 centers in the United States uh, who were admitted to the ICU between March 4th, 2020, and April 13th, uh, 2020, with a confirmed diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 by PCR. Uh, We identified uh, distinct subphenotypes using a technique called latent class analysis, uh, which is a group of methods that can be used to identify unobserved or so-called latent uh, subphenotypes within a heterogeneous population. Uh, And uh, this is done by clustering on observed characteristics like laboratory variables. Uh, We chose uh, 25 different uh, clinical and laboratory variables from data uh, obtained on ICU day one uh, and used them as our class-defining variables. Um, These included uh, things like vital signs, commonly available labs, such as white blood cell count and lactate, as well as other clinical data like vasopressor support and uh, the degree of respiratory failure. Um, And importantly, uh, this uh, methodology uh, does not take into account outcomes like mortality uh, to define the classes. Uh, We use a number of different statistical tests to uh, determine what the optimal number of classes was and uh, identified uh, four unique and and distinct subphenotypes. And then uh, following uh, this identification, uh, we looked at the association of subphenotypes with mortality as well as Uh, relevant clinical outcomes uh, like acute kidney injury, um, ARDS, and thromboembolic events. So you identified four subphenotypes with consistent characteristics. Can you tell our listeners more about those subphenotypes? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, we identified four subphenotypes. Uh, Subphenotype 1 was the least common. Uh, It was about 12% of patients and was characterized by um, acidemia, elevated lactate, and had the highest frequency of vasopressor support on ICU day one. Uh, this group also demonstrated uh, acute organ dysfunction uh, with uh, elevated creatinine and markers of uh, acute organ injury uh, to the liver, as well as um, high need for mechanical ventilation. The second group of patients, subphenotype 2, was about 29% of uh, the patients. And this group showed the highest rates of acute respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation on ICU day one, as well as um, other uh, markers of uh, inflammation, like uh, the highest elevation of C-reactive protein, as well as high white blood cell counts. The third group that we identified was about 22% of patients and had, uh, was characterized by the highest uh, chronic disease burden, Uh, including high rates of diabetes, hypertension, uh, and other uh, chronic medical illness. And finally, the fourth group that we identified uh, showed relatively preserved uh, indices of organ function and developed the, uh, showed the lowest rates of invasive mechanical ventilation on ICU day one. This group also received 
less vasopressor support and um, had uh, relatively normal um, indices of organ dysfunction like uh, lactate and creatinine levels. Now, what did you find regarding mortality rates among these different subphenotypes? Sure. So uh, we analyzed uh, the association of subphenotype uh, with mortality using a number of different methods and found significant differences across the subphenotypes. Um, In both our discovery and replication cohorts, uh, mortality was highest in the subphenotype 1 group of patients at 53% uh, at 28 days, and mortality was lowest in group 4 at 23%. In groups two and three, uh, they were uh, intermediate uh, with uh, 43% of patients in subphenotype two um, dying at 28 days and 36% in subphenotype three. Dr. DeProst, in your editorial, you briefly reviewed the research on tocilizumab and dexamethasone in COVID-19 and the populations in which benefits were seen. Can you please discuss that here? Yes, with with pleasure. Regarding dexamethasone, one of the most important studies to date is a randomized control study published in the New England Journal of Medicine by the Recovery Collaborative Group in 2020. The primary outcome measure was 28-day mortality, which was significantly lower in the dexamethasone than in the standard of care group. However, the absolute and between-group differences in mortality varied according to the level of respiratory support that patients were receiving at randomization. In fact, on one side, patients receiving no oxygen had no benefit of dexamethasone, while on the other side, those receiving invasive ventilator support had the greatest benefit of dexamethasone with more than 12% of absolute mortality difference at day 28. Patients receiving non-invasive oxygen had a lower but still significant benefit of dexamethasone. To summarize, the sickest patients were the most they benefited from dexamethasone. For tocilizumab, Numerous trials have been published, but again, the most important one is probably that published by the Recovery Collaborative Group in 2021 in the Lancet. Again, the primary outcome measure was 28-day mortality, and there was a significant effect of tocilizumab on reducing mortality. In in pre-specified post-hoc analysis, there was a clear benefit of tocilizumab in patients receiving corticosteroids. Second, even if there was no statistically significant difference across patient groups studied, including those receiving different kinds of respiratory support, there was a clear trend suggesting that patients receiving invasive ventilation at randomization had the smallest benefit of the intervention as compared with others. In contrast, this study, as well as several other studies, showed that tocilizumab was efficient in preventing intubation, pointing out to a benefit in the subgroup of non-intubated patients. These data illustrate the different treatment responses 
of well-identified subgroups of patients to key therapeutic interventions. Dr. Vasquez, what did you find regarding the use of anti-inflammatory medicines and antimicrobials in these different subphenotypes? Sure. So um, to put um, this sort of in the context of, uh, you know, where uh, research into therapeutics for COVID-19 was, uh, when we conducted this study, uh, when we uh, enrolled patients uh, for our analysis, um, this was quite early on in the pandemic experience in the United States as well as the world. So um, this was prior to publication of the results of studies like the recovery trial um, that Dr. DePruce just described, uh, which really helped clarify the appropriate use of dexamethasone as well as tocilizumab in patients with COVID-19. Um, but uh, we did uh, analyze um, both the use as well as the uh, potential effect of uh, both uh, anti-inflammatory medications and antimicrobials uh, across different subphenotypes. When we uh, looked at the use of corticosteroids, uh, we found that it varied significantly across subphenotypes, ranging from 30% uh, patients receiving corticosteroids in subphenotype 4 uh, up to 47% of patients in uh, subphenotype 2. Uh, interestingly, we found that uh, corticosteroid use was associated with an increased risk of mortality in subphenotypes 2, 3, and 4 uh, within our discovery cohort, uh, but this finding was not consistent in the replication cohort. Um, similarly, um, anti-IL-6 therapy um, which was used much less frequently um, at that time and only about tw 10 to 20% of patients um, varied significantly across subphenotypes uh, with the highest utilization in subphenotype 2. Uh, we did not find any uh, association between uh, the use of anti-IL-6 therapy with mortality in uh, any of the subphenotypes in either the discovery or replication cohorts. Um, as I uh, mentioned previously, uh, we interpret these um, results cautiously and uh, suspect that uh, given uh, the differences in use and the uh, dates of our study uh, coinciding with, uh, you know, prior to the release of data from studies like the recovery trial, that there uh, likely exists significant confounding uh, in terms of uh, which patients receive these therapies. Uh, when we looked at the use of antimicrobial therapy, we found that this was also extremely common across all subphenotypes on ICU day one and ranged from uh, 77 to 88% uh, of patients receiving any antimicrobial therapy um, across all subphenotypes. Uh, we did not find any significant association between the receipt of antimicrobial therapy and mortality in uh, any of the subphenotypes in either the discovery or the replication cohort of our study. And can you please discuss the study's limitations for our listeners? Sure. Um, as with any study, there's a number of important limitations that are worth discussing. So uh, first, uh, the STOP COVID study uh, from which our data was drawn uh, is an observational study. Uh, we feel that the although the data was collected manually and very systematically, that um, our analysis is still somewhat limited by what was available in the record, uh, medical record. Uh, therefore, uh, substantial uh, missingness uh, is present in some of the variables, including ones that uh, may be uh, impactful in terms of uh, 
characterizing different subphenotypes of disease. Uh, this would include uh, data on circulating uh, novel molecular markers like uh, soluble tumor necrosis factor, uh, IL-6, as well as um, IL-8, which have uh, previously been described as important class-defining variables and other uh, critical illness uh, subphenotype models. Um, an additional limitation is that um, although we had data on oxygen requirements in our uh, ICU patients, uh, we did lack uh, more detailed physiologic data, such as respiratory system compliance and quantitative uh, radiographic information, uh, such as the extent of lung consolidation. And again, these um, are variables that um, other researchers have used to uh, characterize uh, subphenotypes and, and certainly would have added uh, value to our study. And finally, um, our study is limited to patients that are admitted to the ICU, which uh, themselves are a subset of patients infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, other uh, researchers uh, over the past few months have uh, looked to further define subphenotypes in a broader group of patients with SARS-CoV-2 infections, including uh, patients with a diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 but treated as an outpatient, as well as um, patients hospitalized with um, COVID-19 uh, disease but not admitted to the ICU. So what unique addition to the literature does this study make? So um, when we began this study, um, we hypothesized that uh, distinct subphenotypes uh, were present in critically ill patients with COVID-19 and that these could be identified using available clinical and laboratory variables. Uh, we were able to identify these subphenotypes within a large uh, geographically as well as demographically diverse group of hospitalized ICU patients and also demonstrated significant differences in mortality at 28 days as well as um, important differences in the incidence of outcomes like ARDS, acute kidney injury, and thrombotic events uh, at 14 days. Uh, we think this um, information is a early step in toward uh, personalizing our approach to uh, treating uh, patients with COVID-19 as well as uh, can serve as a framework for um, other research uh, that looks to um, further delineate these subphenotypes and use that as a stepping stone to um, uh, more personalized medical therapies for critically ill patients. Great. Dr. DeProst, you discussed the need to assess the data from this study in terms of its generalizability. Other than assessing how reproducible this data is at other centers, what other areas of generalizability should be considered, like the timeline of the pandemic or variants of COVID-19? Well, this is a very good question. In fact, the COVID-19 pandemic keeps changing, and data analysis takes a lot of time. In fact, since Dr. Vasquez and colleagues analyzed and published their study, many key aspects have changed that could completely modify the results should a similar analysis be performed with a refreshed set of data. I see two major reasons why it would be interesting to check the generalizability of these results. First, SARS-CoV-2 variants may lead to more severe disease with higher viral loads, what we currently see with the Delta variant. And we can assume the, the 
underlying lung disease has somewhat different characteristics in terms of inflammation, in terms of thrombosis, and maybe bacterial co-infections, thus leading to potentially different subphenotype distributions. Second, patient management has changed a lot since the first wave with now almost 100% of severe COVID-19 patients receiving steroids and much more patients receiving anti-IL-6 drugs, as Dr. Vasquez just mentioned, uh, which was not the case in, in the cohort uh, of the first wave patients included. Uh, and all these factors potentially impacted on the relationship between subphenotypes and outcomes. So, Dr. Vasquez, what do you see as the next steps for this research? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I think there are three important steps that can be taken to build upon this research and other similar work that's been done to describe uh, critical illness subphenotypes and other subphenotypes in patients with COVID-19. First, um, I think we need to uh, develop a more detailed understanding of these disease subphenotypes um, in order to clarify what drives the differences in clinical outcomes and treatment responses that we see. Um, this likely means incorporating more robust biomarker data, uh, incorporating data on immune profiling to characterize uh, patient-specific host response to illness, and in uh, diseases like COVID-19, uh, inclusion of more robust data on respiratory physiology. Second, I think there needs to be uh, use of pre-existing data from COVID-19 clinical trials to uh, assess for differential res treatment, uh, differential responses to treatment across subphenotypes. And third, I think we need to work to develop user-friendly means by which cl clinicians can uh, group patients into subphenotypes, uh, especially if we're able to identify differential responses to treatment that vary across subphenotypes. We need a way to translate um, this research finding uh, into clinical application more easily. And Dr. DePost, do you have thoughts on the next steps for this research? First, I completely agree with uh, what Dr. Vasquez suggested, and, and I agree with uh, his first suggestion on implementing uh, the analysis that has been done with uh, more uh, more uh, subtle variables, uh, biomarkers, and maybe uh, physiological variables, uh, including respiratory system uh, variables, which I think maybe lacked this uh, very nice study. Uh, the next steps, uh, in my opinion, would be to replicate uh, these findings using other cohorts and to assess whether uh, different subphenotypes would be associated with different treatment responses, as has been shown in non-COVID-19 ARDS using interventional cohorts. I think this is really the, the key uh, the key application of, uh, of this work. And as we finish up this discussion, can you each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you've learned from your experiences and this study? What do you want them to take away from this discussion? Dr. DeProst. 
Well, I believe as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to, bro- to progress, we need to go on analyzing large data sets so that to better delineate patient phenotypes. And clearly, not all patients should be treated the same. This is what we, what we can uh, keep from this discussion. We have learned this from several diseases before the COVID-19 pandemic, and likely this will be the same uh, for severe COVID-19 patients. So uh, we, we now have to, to demonstrate it. And Dr. Vasquez. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, first, I just want to thank my co-authors, especially Shruti Gupta, David Leaf, and Michael Shashadi, as well as the other Stop COVID investigators for helping uh, to push uh, this project uh, to completion. With regards to our research, um, I'm very excited about the potential for subphenotypes uh, research to eventually lead uh, to more targeted and personalized approach to uh, the care of critically ill patients as well as other hospitalized patients, uh, including those with COVID-19. And I think that uh, despite the numerous challenges that the pandemic has uh, brought to us, um, and it has also generated a lot of uh, interesting new research partnerships and collaborations, uh, one of which is the Stop COVID uh, collaboration. And um, I think uh, these will hopefully serve as new models and examples of how we can uh, better collaborate um, across different institutions and across different um, countries to push research like this forward. Well, a big thank you to both Dr. Vasquez and Dr. DeProst for a very interesting discussion. And a big thank you to our CHEST community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a CHEST podcast. Until next time.